0: Here's a Japanese Sandman Sneaking on without you Just an old second Sandman he buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through
1: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood, And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, it's been a busy week. We've had Concrete Cow, which we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. But uh, now it's all finished.
0: It has. Yeah, We're, what, five days later now and I'm still recovering.
1: I used to <laughs> recover. You I did really run am. three games, Scott.
0: Yes, and I didn't sleep much the night before and I had a cold and, well...
1: Yes, and I played in one of them, a World War Cthulhu London game. Is that oh, right, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> Some combination of World War and Cthulhu. Yes, anyway, um, a 1940s World yeah. War Cthulhu
2: London game yeah. in the Blitz in London. That was very good. Oh, cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah.
2: Oh,
1: yes.
0: I had a
2: bit of fun with that. Yeah. I, I got to play World War Cthulhu as well for once. What did you play, Matt? Um, I played the Cold War game set in with, Vietnam. Is that with Keeper Ant? Uh, yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in it Vietnam. took me a while well for my memory to get going there. Yeah, so in in the, Sorry, in the Vietnam
1: War? Yes. Oh, OK. Oh, that's quite an alternative setting.
2: Yeah, uh, that's why a popular favourite of, uh, I think it's Giles Hill that writes a lot of uh, Vietnam scenarios that he turns up to continuum with uh, every other year.
0: Oh, oh really? Right.
2: Okay. Yeah, okay. so this this was definitely, yeah, lots of Apocalypse Now references. So. Yes, it's oh, hard cool. to avoid
0: them. <laughs> I believe Anthony's supposed to be running it for me online at some stage, so no spoilers, please. No, no, not at all.
2: Managed to have the luck of the devil with the uh, with the raffle as well. Oh, my God, did you ever? Yeah. Well, actually, Matt, Matt,
1: I have to tell you, when you buy half the lottery tickets, that's not really considered luck. As far well, as I'm concerned, <laughs> it is. Someone else didn't buy the other half. <laughs> Well, they did, yes. Just, I, you were lucky. Well,
2: okay, you were lucky. Well, I think it's just impressive that he beat Nick Reynolds for the punch there. Yeah, but only by one ticket because then I pulled out his next one. Yeah, there is a guy, <laughs> uh, one of our friends, Nick
1: Reynolds, who seems to buy a handful of tickets and they all come up. This time, I don't think he bought any, did he? Oh, uh, yes, he did.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: And Steve Ellis rubbed them. Uh, rubbed his tickets on Nick for luck, and promptly and it worked. won. Yeah. Yeah, oh, you <laughs> like, won about five every prizes. Other prize. yes. yeah. I think we, I think me and Tiff got the the one thing that I wanted. I mean, I spent forty or quid's worth on tickets just to get a co- the co- signed copy of Doors to Darkness. Yes, um, picked, Tiff got a put, couple of all rolled up stuff, and then we just handed the tickets out to people around us, and then about five or six other people of them, one from our. Yeah, tickets. you were kind
1: enough to give me a strip of tickets, but I, you know, I had two strips then, but. It was like just below, just above, just
2: below, just above, but ah. never quite on the on the money. But you know, <laughs> that's never mind That's normally but my luck with the con- uh, with the conception raffle, to be fair. But there, there were a lot of prizes in that raffle. Yeah, yeah. We, we really, we, we really must thank
0: been... everyone who gave prizes there. I mean, we we had prizes from Chaosium, Cubicle Seven, Grain all rolled up, and Leisure Games, and, and and countless other people.
1: I mean, it was it, it was such a spread of prizes. I mean, there were copies amazing. of the Monster of the Week. There were copies of the latest Call of Cthulhu publications mm-hmm. from Mike. Yep. There were uh, there was the one-ring box set from
0: uh, uh, from Cubicle 7. Uh, there, there was, was Hellgrine the
2: vouchers. Yep. There was a whole host of stuff. Speaking of throwing money at projects... Mm. Yes,
0: well, there's a Kickstarter that's just launched, uh, which we may or may not be able to talk about a bit more later in the show, depending on whether we get a chance to play the game uh, before Paul
1: edits this and puts it out. Oh, I see. Gosh, that was convoluted. Right, I yes. was thinking, how are we going to play it before the end of the
0: show, Scott? This is so
1: ambitious. Through <laughs> the magic
0: of editing for Hall. I get I'll, it now. I'll explain right. how editing works to you okay. later. <laughs> yeah, please
1: do. I get it now. Okay, yeah, well, we'll keep that magic inside. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so tell us. do you want to give us a little pricey of what the game's about?
0: Yes, the game's called Lovecraft-esque, and it's put out by Joshua Fox and Becky Anderson, who uh, husband and wife team. Uh, they go to a lot of British conventions, British game designers, and they publish under an imprint called Black Armada. The game itself, it's a story game, a collaborative sort of storytelling type RPG, uh, GM-less, where you are playing between you, a Lovecraftian investigator, who is going along to investigate a mystery that, in the scenarios you have, has no set solution. You have a premise, you have a write-up of the, uh, the investigator and you have a bunch of clues and it's up to you to sort of play through the investigation and see you know, what horrible
1: truths it, it takes you to. So no GM and just one uh, player character?
2: Exactly. It does yes. use Dicer, right? I can't remember. Oh! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just do so do, you'll do, have to do, pledge do. and see.
1: <laughs> we, have to, we have to draw the line somewhere, Dawood. <laughs> No dice, no game. I
0: no it uses custom cards. Oh. That is true because I know yeah, i it. does the,
1: oh, um, I saw that? Yes. No, I'm kidding. It's um, I'm sure cards are fine. <laughs> I've got no problem with cards. <laughs> no, like... I haven't either. Really, I was going to say
2: heaven and earth. Second, that uses cards. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was lucky enough that um our friend uh, Pookie put Up for um, a pledge, and it notified me that he'd backed the project. So, this was maybe minutes after it went live. Huh. I was the I think seventh backer. Nice, yeah, managed to get the first of the um, one, the second well, equal top tier rewards one of three um, goat bound, uh, goat's goat leather bound books. They're not bound in a whole goat. Well, I don't know, it depends on how much they want to pay. <laughs>
0: But, uh, yeah, as as we record, the project is actually fully funded now and <laughs> is creeping up on the first stretch goal. And the stretch goals include a lot of scenarios. Uh, there's, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember who's writing them, Julia ellingbow
2: um, uh, Greg Walmsley, uh, uh, Justin Morningstar.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm writing one of them,
2: yes. Oh, you remember that. Yes. You're just, just ghostwriting for the rest, you know?
1: <laughs> And they're out chasing and buttering goats as we speak for Matt's copy. Slitting <laughs> <laughs> their throats,
0: Excellent. spilling blood upon the floor. Sounds like an average Saturday night to me.
2: Well, it's it hey attracted me to a Kickstarter. The fact there's only gonna be three copies. It's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be a very rare book. I'm I'm a happy man. The bibliophile in me just got a I've uh, just got a few couple, uh, a few minor charges, I what, think.
0: What are they doing with the rest of the goat? Making a curry? Mmm. Okay. Um, yeah, th- th- that should be another stretch goal. I know you like that, Scott. I, I love mm. goat
1: curry. Curry. Whereas our friend Robin would probably make a hat. <laughs> mm. As seen in Lamentations of the Plain Princess the other evening. So yes. That's kind of by the by. Anyway. <laughs>
0: The other cool thing I've noticed over the last couple of weeks is on Reddit, there's a, a subreddit on, on Reddit which is devoted to Lovecraft. Well, there, there's a number of subreddits devoted to Lovecraft, Call of Cthulhu, and all things Lovecraftian, but there's one called Lovecraft which is devoted particularly to the man and his work. And there is one user on there who <laughs> has the username Special Flesh, which you know, mm. I, I won't think. Well, about I did it too follow much. your
1: link, Scott. I, I googled Special Flesh, but. I didn't see any pictures of Lovecraft. So,
2: uh, <laughs> you got, you I'm not sure about you this.
0: got distracted. Well,
2: oh. yes, yeah, easily done. I'm having mem- flashbacks back to video now. Yeah, <laughs> long live New the flesh. special flesh.
0: flesh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, this user, I don't know where he or she is finding them from, but they found uh, lots and lots of photographs uh, of Lovecraft taken by his friends, uh, or you know, um, in some cases by Sonia Green, and they, they, there's. Some ranging from when he was an infant, you know... When you say lost, how
1: many are you talking about? Because, no, in, in, in seriousness, I did see a couple. One of him as a baby yeah. and one of him with, with Barlow.
0: Yeah, they, they, um, they've posted about a dozen so far. Really? That's... I, and these are pictures I have never Where seen have anywhere these come else. from? It's... I don't know. I mean, there's, there's one, for example, which uh, was, I mean, just quite boggling. It's one that Sonny Green took of Lovecraft uh, when they were living together in Brooklyn. And apparently... Uh, Green had taken it upon herself to try to fatten Lovecraft up a bit. And it really worked, because he is a fat bastard in this. He <laughs> is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's bursting out of his suit and he's got a round face and it's, it's really quite heartening. And apparently, yeah, if they stayed married, he, he would have ended up my size.
2: <sighs> That's suddenly left three stunned people round the mic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you see one of them doing the conga at the Black Congregational Church? That's quite a nice one. I, I think the word that springs to
2: mind is Photoshop.
0: <laughs> but I'll put a link to this in the show notes uh, so you can see all these pictures for yourself. because yeah, I'm are, very keen to see yeah, these. Not all of them are fantastic quality and some of them are very blurry, but, you know, they're, they're, they're like I say, still ones that I've just never seen anywhere else.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, gents, what's our topic for this week?
1: Dun-dun-dun, our top three monsters
0: from Call of Cthulhu. Yep, we're choosing three favourite monsters each and we're going to talk about them. Which we
1: do,
0: (laughs) but before that,
1: and now the Lovecraftian word of the week.
2: And this week we're looking at amorphous. An adjective, lacking a physical form or shape, or lacking organisation, one might say formless. And
0: this is, unlike some of the other words we've had recently, a word that Lovecraft actually used a fair bit. Uh, When I was looking through my big uh, list of Lovecraft stories uh, and I searched for amorphous, I got, I think it was about 27 hits. I mean, that did include variants like amorphously, but yeah you know, compared to you know things like tome and non-Euclidean which we've looked at recently that is a fairly heavily used word.
1: Yeah, sure is. Yeah, I do associate it with Lovecraft, but perhaps not as much as I do non-Euclidean, but I guess yeah, I don't know why, but um, amorphous is perhaps a more common word. Yeah, but 10 times more common in Lovecraft than, than non-Euclidean.
0: <laughs> Let's take a look at a few examples of how Lovecraft used it.
1: From the Colour Out of Space. It was a scene from a vision of Fuseli, and over all the rest reigned that riot of luminous amorphousness, that alien and undimensioned rainbow of cryptic poison from the well, seething, feeling, lapping, reaching, scintillating, straining, and malignly bubbling in its cosmic and unrecognisable chromaticism.
0: From the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. There were, in such voyages, incalculable local dangers. As well as that shocking final peril which gibbers unmentionably outside the ordered universe where no dreams reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion which blasphemes and bubbles at the centre of all infinity. The boundless demon-sultan Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud, and who gnaws hungrily in inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time amidst the muffled, maddening beating of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes to which detestable pounding and piping dance slowly, awkwardly and absurdly the gigantic ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, tenebrous, mindless other gods, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep.
2: And from out of the eons, leaping an incredible gulf of time behind all the civilizations, races and lands we know, They cluster round the vanished nation and a vanished continent of the misty, fabulous dawn years, that to which legend has given the name of Mu, and which old tablets in the primal Nakal tongue speak of as flourishing 200,000 years ago, when Europe harboured only hybrid entities and lost Hyperborea knew the nameless worship of black amorphous Sathogwa.
1: Let's kick off our main theme for tonight, and it's our top three monsters. We're going to go round and start with number three each. We're going to say a little bit about them, and then we're going to build up to the number one slot.
0: But before we jump into that, what is it that makes for an interesting monster in Call of Cthulhu? I mean, one of the things that really appeals to me about the monsters in Call of Cthulhu is that, with, with rare exceptions, they tend to be intelligent, driven alien creatures with their own agendas, which are quite often completely unknowable to mankind. But, you know, this isn't just a game where you have mindless beasts to be fought and overcome. This is a game with intelligent uh, actors who are, you know, quite often in direct opposition to the PCs or who have plans that the PCs need to overcome.
1: That's by no means unique to to Call of Cthulhu though, I mean, you know, we've been having articles, you know, even in the early White Dwarfs in the early 80s I can remember about, you know, monsters have feelings too and so on and and sort of discussing the motivations of of various monsters that are, you know, the more intelligent ones. Um, You know, there were plenty of intelligent monsters even in basic D&D. Um, but I think what sets Call of Cthulhu apart is
0: that these intelligences and these motivations are like generally ineffable.
1: That can make them quite difficult to play as a Keeper, I think, because you kind of think, well, what would they do now?
2: Mm. I don't know! Because <laughs> <laughs> they're unknowable. Oddly enough, my brain isn't like, built to comprehend that question. Yeah, Ah, mine is. <laughs> well, you're uniquely uh, you know,
1: positioned to, to do this, Scott, obviously. <laughs> no, he's just a riding in there then. Ah, oh, that. that would explain <laughs> a lot. What else makes a Lovecraftian monster, then, as opposed to, opposed to a DD monster or any other style of monsters? Is there something? I mean, is, are yeah. the monsters uniquely different?
0: Well, I think not all of the monsters, but some of them are just simple affronts to our notions of reality, to our notions of nature and what is proper in the world. They are things that should not be.
2: Yeah. The, the word I was going to say, because we've discussed this topic before, was the Methos as corruption, would be a corruption of another form, a bit like a servant of Glacky starts off as a person, but then becomes something very not a person. So it's you can see where that boundary has been blurred into something, frankly, horrible.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. I, Lovecraft did use a number of non- monsters, and we'll look at a few of them as we go on, which do sort of straddle the line between humanity and alien. Just to explain, we've limited ourselves to creatures from Call of Cthulhu and we've excluded anything that can be classified as a god.
1: And I'd just like to take a moment to extend thanks to Daniel for posting to the Blasphemous Tomes website and suggesting tonight's topic.
2: And number three on my top three list, um, I've gone with probably the one monster you would not ever want to meet in a scenario. Ever? Well, hold on, um, Matt. Isn't that most of them? I <laughs> oh, this this one a bit more than most. Okay. Um, not unless you've got heavy artillery and multiple sources of it potentially to, to try and deal with it.
1: Again, you're not actually not narrowing
0: <laughs> it
2: down. That, that 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 cuts out maybe about a third of them. <laughs> well, this one this one's the one that at least on the size chart is the biggest, by far the biggest. Ah, uh, the world eaters. Yes, the dolls. Ah. Uh, yeah, specifically for that reason. Just the idea of a... Um, something that probably gave um, Brian Herbert a nightmare at some point, so that he then went on to write Dune. Um, these terrible, gargantuan, blasphemous horror that just devour whole worlds, that they're almost devouring reality itself, that they are eating everything in its way.
1: Yeah, I do picture them. I do picture the things in Dune, really—the the big sandworms When I think of these, <laughs> mm, yes. And uh, are they supposed to be resident on Earth? Or are they not? Are they? I mean, they're not supposed to be under the ground.
2: No, I think the. the only, are they summoned to Earth? The only place I think they appear in Lovecraft's works—correct I mean, me if I'm wrong—is when Randolph Carter goes down into the underworld in the Dreamlands, and he looks down past the Vale of Panath, and just describes these monstrous. Uh, creatures rearing hundreds of feet up, um, feet up into the air, um, that are slithering and slithing over over the ground. There's not really any. Made any particularly detailed description given of them? Mm. Um, a lot of the detail is provided in the um, in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, but they're mostly seen as denizens of the Dreamlands. That's yeah. something that we'll we'll
0: come back to several times, I think, during the course of this discussion. But a lot of the monsters in Call of Cthulhu come from pretty scant descriptions in the original mm. text.
1: And I think our our uh, understanding of what those monsters are has been concreted by the uh, by the, the Call of Cthulhu role playing game book. Mm. Uh, but when you go back to the source, they're quite kind of nebulous things well oh, in
2: some cases they're just names just names mm. yeah indeed yeah and even this one there's a confusion over um, over the actual spelling yeah whether it be bowl with a b or dole with a d have you used it or been in a game where it's featured well I know it's appeared in one campaign admittedly I've not um, I've not played said campaign but I've I've looked through the book and I think there's there's a potential at least one can be summoned rather than it does actually turn up and start devouring parts of earth in a the waking world if they world. turn up you're kind of in trouble really <laughs> yeah just, just a little bit and I have um, I have put them in a game I've run. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've had
1: characters looking down a, a kind of like a a, a a mystical gate and seeing something coming, and they can see it, and then they kind of get a sense of scale, and they re- they they thought it was something small coming through, but then they get a sense of scale and realise actually no, it is really really massive. It's just a very long <laughs> way
2: away. <laughs> it's that whole. Um... The doctor trying to explain to Leela how can the big uh, the big box fit inside the small box when he talks about transcendental engineering to how the TARDIS works.
0: <laughs> Whereas my mind went straight to Father Ted.
2: Yes, this is the difference between us, story.
0: <laughs> small, far away. Yeah. Yep, that's my number three on my list. My choice for number three is a category of creature or a range of creatures that don't even have names. They come from a Lovecraft story, From Beyond, and they are the creatures from higher dimensions that are unveiled or made visible to people through the use of the Tillinghast resonator. These things that float and slither through the air like deep-sea creatures. These strange amorphous, perhaps? Whoa, just Oh, yeah.
2: nice.
0: <laughs> uh, the These strange amorphous masses or these, these worm-like things which just swim around us constantly, but of which we are completely oblivious. But, of course, once we are in a state of mind whereby we can perceive them, they can perceive us. And they are very hungry. And I love these things for a variety of reasons. One is that they're just pretty damn weird. I... I... Love looking at pictures of deep-sea creatures. You know, there are a lot of strange things down there under the ocean. And Lovecraft, you know, obviously with his fear of the sea and, and interest in the, the frisson that gave him, must have taken some inspiration for that because he makes the direct parallel in the story. So just the idea that these weird things are around us, floating not just through the air, but in and out of us the whole mm. time, is, is really quite creepy, But then the idea that we can be put into a state of consciousness whereby we are suddenly prey is, yeah, really quite frightening. But from a game design perspective, one of the things that I like about them is how little they've been
1: explored in uh, Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I think the concept of the killing gas resonator has been used in a few scenarios, but not that much has been made of those creatures. No, I've
0: certainly written a scenario that does revolve around them, Mm. but um, I... I'm not familiar with too many other uses. Then. So,
1: did you use a gate then for them to come through and kind of grab people, or sort of, of, I you, of I used, in reality?
0: I used a variant of it. I didn't use a
2: Tillinghast resonator per se. I think from my from my research into a few scenarios, I can't remember the life for the life of me the name of it, but there is a creature that if it isn't one of them, it certainly inspired by them, um, called the Desh. Oh, okay. um, that they they erupt through people's heads. Um, that it's when again when they perceive certain things and that they don't exist too long on the other side of the barrier but again they're almost like these fish that fly through the air and and so on
1: do you ever get those bits floating on your eye yes and do you get that Matt I have no idea what you're talking Sometimes about. Sometimes when you're just looking straight ahead, you get like a little bit sort of floating across the, I think it's yeah. the surface of your eye. Oh, yeah, yeah, now I know what you mean, yeah. yeah. I kind of picture them a little bit like those. You can kind of see it, but then but then when you move your eye to look, it moves. Yep, yes. And it's kind of transparent or translucent. And, you know, I can ima- imagine what people would have made of those, you know, a, a few hundred years ago. I mean... They would. Have, they would have just. Would they not have thought it was something easily? You know, could easily put some sort of mystical understanding on that. Mm. Well, that's what you get for playing with your pineal gland, Paul. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, I've got this hole on the front of my head. <laughs> As
2: long as you don't start eating uh, dead, raw meat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we have sort of touched upon, tangentially, the From Beyond film there, and that did bring in an interesting variant of them, which is that very intelligent one. I mean, most of them seem to be, you know, really animals, but there was this intelligent one which ended up fusing with Dr Pretorius in that and and creating this sort of shocker like hybrid, which I thought was rather lovely. Hmm. But, yeah... The, the thing I really like about them, as I touched on a moment ago, is the fact that they haven't been described to death in the fiction already. The, and also because they're a whole category of creature, that if you're a scenario writer or if you're uh, creating something for your home group, you can just pick you know, one of these many things out and just describe whatever characteristics you want to it, mm. and you're not contradicting anything that's
1: out there already. Okay, well, I think for my number three, I'm going to start with the Dark Young. Bold choice. Well, if you want a big monster to throw in, you know, you can't go wrong with the Dark Young, really. It's something that has the appeal that it's, you know, it's a big monster that is going to scare people. But it's kind of like the big monster where, you know, if there's a party of you, you can kind of think, well, some of us are going to die. Some of us might escape, though. Yeah. And, you know, if you're really tooled up... Uh, You might take it on. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of the bottom end of
0: the big monsters in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. It's that tipping point where you're going from something that a a tooled-up group of investigators can probably survive
2: to possible TBK. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always think when I'm going to run with those, because I've run uh, with them in a few scenarios now, (laughs) if you go down to the woods today, you're probably going (laughs) to die. And it's like it's got hooves... Yep. And tentacles, and it bellows, um,
1: and it's like a giant ant, and, and uh-huh. lots of mouths, and it <laughs> slime. And slime.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. it's win-win, and you know, it's not so. It's not like a doll that I can't really conceive. There's going to be them on the planet. I can conceive there would be dark young hiding in, you know, even in the woods in, you know, in Wales or something. Mm. It could be a dark young, especially after Matt's been on holiday there. Um, <laughs> you know, because uh, in 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 the uh, one of the campaigns that I ran, uh, one of the cultists was supposed to summon a dark young, oh, yeah. but I was able to ditch that part of the plot, because Matt uh, by, by contrivances <laughs> that I won't detail, Matt's uh, player character ended up doing just that
2: because it made a sensible
0: plan. Who but, needs cultists when we have Matt? Y-
2: y- well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's marvellous. And it was almost effective if we didn't have another investigator who'd gone wandering off. Mat-down, and mat-down, y- mat-down.
1: if you can summon one of those things and control it and it stomps around and, and does your bidding, then, you know, that's marvellous. And as I recall, cool. some of the other player characters have got a truck or something and yeah, crashed into they, it. They rammed and it. did quite a lot of damage to it. So it's not invulnerable. It's got quite a few attacks per round.
2: And it makes yeah. a wonderful miniature uh, for oh, Arkham yes. Horror. Yeah, it does For Arkham yeah. Horror, they have a wonderful um, plastic figure you can drop onto the table that I use. And in Cthulhu Wars. Oh, nice the huge one. In
1: fact, yeah. it's yes, just looking nice looking monster. And talking of Cthulhu Wars, who created the Dark Young?
2: Sandy, Sandy Peterson. Peterson.
1: Mm. Um, so, obviously, they're, they're referred to in, you know, particularly with Lovecraft and uh, Shub Nicarath, Black Goat of the Woods with a Thousand Young. And yeah. he was saying about that uh, the the...
0: There's rather, a Robert. There's a Robert Block story, the name of which eludes me. That uh, describes them at yeah, all. The, the, the notebook in the house, or something like that, uh, which describes a creature which could be the Dark Young. Uh, and. Um, I, I seem to remember it is referenced, you know, somehow as being associated with, you know, the the,
1: the black goat of the woods and the thousand young,
0: but it's never called the Dark Young, and it's never described the same way as it is in Call of Cthulhu. But
1: I think that was a masterstroke by Sandy making the Dark Young really. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah.
2: And moving on to number two. My second choice, again, we've discussed in an episode a few... Uh, I was going to say probably a few months ago now, in real time. Uh-huh. Encountered in deepest, darkest Australia, the great race of Yith. Oh. Okay. The idea of an antagonist, which, especially if you're encountering them in modern day, mm. that is a purely a possessing entity that, in theory, could jump between anyone in the room if it knew where to to jump to, that you haven't got any possible way of forcing it to do what you want, that is a really almost intangible adversary operating from millions of years in the past, frankly that's goddamn scary and I love it. Hard to conceive, It's not only very intelligent, but knowing the past and the future at once,
1: Mm. potentially. And one of the things that I find really disturbing about the Great
0: Race is they're not... Necessarily malevolent, but they are willing to commit genocide just out of sheer expedience.
2: Hmm. Yeah, a, a race that is dedicated to, just because they can, just a- accumulating all knowledge and having almost a complete disregard for life in general, as long as it suits their ends. Again, I think this they are horrifying. And I think they make a wonderful, not so much an all-knowing NPC or all all-knowing antagonist, but someone that knows enough to make them incredibly dangerous, and that they can just do what they want to manipulate the course of history should they wish as well. I mean, they they just exude potential.
0: Yeah, and they can bring in all sorts of fun stuff to do with time, which, if handled correctly in a game, can be very potent, and if handled mm. badly, will fuck your campaign up right royally.
1: <laughs> so, who did kill the uh, mayor I again? Just, just don't, don't. don't. <laughs> And have you had some experience with the Great Race? of Yith, Matt? Yes. Not literally yourself, but, you know. Or, yeah. or, or literally yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Might be having a moment right now. No, um, no I've used them in, um, in games before, in one-shots and long and longer games. They work wonderfully as a foreshadowing tool, especially if you're um, indicating that something big is going to happen, something that has attracted the attention of the Great Race, that they want to observe the course of what would be unfolding at that moment in time. Again, it's just... What was that? Dialing up the ominous... I was going to say, ominicity tone.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm. If, if
2: that wasn't a word, well, it is now.
1: Because <laughs> yeah, I don't see them being used a great deal, you know, generally. They're not a...
2: They're in a couple of published scenarios. Yeah, they're yeah. in a few,
0: but yes, I mean, they're not one of the most heavily used yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. creatures. I think one of the reasons why they aren't necessarily used as much in Call of Cthulhu as some others is they're a creature that the player characters are very rarely going to encounter physically.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, as you said, they're not... They're not tangibly kind of malevolent necessarily. They're, they're a bit more unknowable. Their plans, their plans are hard to kind of get your get your hands on. Really, they're hard to to get your mind around exactly what they're trying to do. Kind of yeah. almost more so than most other things.
0: Yeah, as Matt said, a lot of it comes down to the acquisition of knowledge and, mm. and secondarily, well, actually probably primarily survival. You know, the fact that they are willing to wipe out entire races to ensure their own survival makes them pretty terrifying. Well, that, that and the fact that they've got the means to do so.
1: And more on them a couple of episodes back when we talked about... What's the
2: The Shadow Out of Time.
1: Yes. Appropriately, if you want to learn more about them,
0: go back in time a few episodes.
2: <laughs> well, then I've thought an appropriate choice. Well, for my
0: second choice, I choose the Shoggoth.
2: Because he's nice, cute and fluffy.
0: Yes. And now, <laughs> I, I I like Shoggoths because they are one of the most purely monstrous of Lovecraft's creations. They are... Amorphous masses of black jelly that can exude eyes and mouths and tentacles and claws as they need.
2: And you got amorphous in again. I did. Yeah. <laughs> You're not getting points for this. <laughs> not, you know.
0: But they are. They're huge. Yeah, you know, they—they, um, I described one I remember in a scenario ages ago uh, to a player character who made the mistake of trying to stand one down as being like a freight train just bearing down on him.
1: Yeah, I think well I think that's how Lovecraft describes it in the Mountains of Madness. Is like a that, a that must train. have been where
0: I stole it from. I there. believe so. Yeah,
1: a subway train. I think. I, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I only steal from the best. Well, yes.
0: <laughs> and again, uh, one of the interesting things about them is that they are intelligent. Uh, in At the Mountains of Madness, the older things created them as a slave race, but they developed intelligence over time, uh, or became more intelligent over time, and ended up developing enough will to actually uh, rebel, and ended up destroying their master's civilization. Uh, you know, this was millions of years ago, and you know these things are, are functionally immortal, and there
2: are still some of them around. Hmm. They like to reside on the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And such, and they've they've made friends with a lot of other mythos races, haven't they?
0: Yeah, they turn up again in a few other Lovecraft stories. The thing on the doorstep makes that reference to the pit Mm -hmm. of the Shoggoths. um, The Shadow of Rinsmith talks about, uh, Zadok Allen talks about, have you ever heard of a Shoggoth? Did you
1: ever see a Shoggoth? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But he just kind of says it and, like, you know. (laughs) And then never follows up on it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: No, (laughs) go away. Oh, that should be a thankfully no. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I like the idea that over time they've sort of evolved and adapted, because sometime later you end up with um, the version of the Shoggoth that you encounter in, in Michael Shea's story, Fat Face, which is a Shoggoth that has learned to adapt and take uh, a human guise. And this was lifted pretty much wholesale for Mr. Shiny in At Your Door. Uh, which, you know, is now enshrined in the rules as what a Shoggoth lord, isn't it? Yeah, yes.
1: that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: which is a slightly smaller Shoggoth, well, actually much smaller Shoggoth, that is in control enough of its shape-shifting ability to you know actually pass for human. Um, I mean, it's it's not a desperately good uh, disguise, and, and, you know, if you're looking for it, you will see through it, but... But I like, yeah, this, this mimicking ability of it. I mean, there's one scenario that I think Kiri Birch wrote, which uses this to great effect. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just,
2: does this involve a pool? Yes. Oh, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. When, when that comes up. But it's, it, it wasn't so much the pool, it was, you know, when you encounter it in its first guise, you have no idea that that's what it is. Yeah. When you encounter, th- yeah, these, these human shapes, they're just very creepy, very wrong, and you don't realise until late in the scenario just how creepy and wrong they are.
2: Mm-hmm. I remember having a lot of fun playing that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, they st- Shockers struck me as being very, very um, adaptable things, not just as monsters, but adaptable things in the way you can use them in scenarios. Uh, yeah, the fact that they are shapeshifters, the fact that they're intelligent, the fact that they're protoplasmic means that you, know, you can use bits of them to do you know, various things in a scenario. I, I, I wrote some stuff recently for a publication, which I won't mention here for spoilers, which basically you know, involves lots of bits of Shoggoth getting scattered over a large area and doing various horrible things as a result as so it tries to reassemble itself. Very horrible.
1: <laughs> Moving on to my number two slot and I'm going for the Migo. Eek. A classic. A classic from The Whisper in Darkness. Half fungus, half insect. I mean, that's a great combination, isn't it? That's <laughs> one of the things I remember from my early days of reading Lovecraft, the weird combinations of, of of stuff that he'd put together. Yeah, it's
0: not quite as weird as the description of the Bayaki, which is... What's yeah. that? Oh, God, weird. what is it? Uh, part vulture, part mole, part decaying human corpse. Part mm. mole. Yeah. That
1: is very specific. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Um, so, um, I mean, the, the description in the, the Whisper in Darkness is fantastic, especially you know, when he finds the, the kind of decayed parts of one that's been washed down in the floods at the side of a river, which mm. is portrayed very well in the um, HPLHS's film, mm. um, The Whisper in Darkness. There's a lovely scene in that when they kind of go down and there's this kind of strange creature. I mean, they're about kind of human size, um, but they're kind of insectoid, they can fly. Blowing um, heads. Yeah. Um, and they can communicate with a kind of buzzing language. They can speak straight into your head, which is really cool. Uh, and they seem to want to work with humanity. I mean, not in a benevolent way, but they want to kind yeah. of take on human servants. They, they, they want to work
0: with us the way that you know, we perhaps work with you know, dogs.
1: You know, they, they, we look after
2: dogs pretty well in general, mm-hmm. though. <laughs>
1: yeah, it depends where in the
0: world yeah.
2: I, I I always got almost like a colonial vibe with them, that they seem very oh, much like a... Yeah. Um, but the British Empire wandering into that's, somewhere in Africa and... That, that's um, a good, uh, good parallel. Yeah, yeah. So they want to come in, take all your natural resources and then bugger back off again and don't give a care about the shit they leave behind. Yeah, yeah,
1: and we'll kind of take one or two of the locals and take them under our wing and kind mm-hmm. of make use of them to, to, uh, you know, to, to, to get their, the locals... Put, put their brain in a box. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Brain canister.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is one of Lovecraft's creepiest inventions. <laughs> that's bloody marvellous, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it was the first use of the the brain in the jar motif, but it must have at the very least been one of the very earliest. Well, we see it in the films of Frankenstein. To my recollection, it doesn't appear in the book,
2: and um, and even works its way into Doctor Who as well. Oh yeah, Brain in, of Borbius. indeed. Yeah. yeah, that's so chuffed that someone else someone else got, someone got, else got the reference. reference. Yeah. <laughs>
1: One of the things that the MIGO can be particularly used uh, for in scenarios is their technology. Um, So, I mean, in the book, we have references to MIGO web armour, various, you know, MIGO technology. Also, they're mining the earth. So, you know, they're they're digging things up, probably lending people technology and so on to, you know, to to further further their goals. So... You know, there's all sorts of things which you can... And and I've done this, written one or two scenarios where what's going on is kind of backed by the Migo, and they might turn up at the end, but not necessarily, Mm. but they're kind of the moving force behind it and they've enabled the the horrors to take place. But
0: they are also just really good alien mad scientists that you can put into things. Mm. So if you want a mad science explanation for some weirdness that you're throwing into a scenario, well,
2: you know, a a Mego did it. yeah. (laughs) Insert, insert MeeGo for what's here. <coughs> I'm not saying it was Migo, but it was MeeGo. <laughs> I like as well that um, Delta Green have expanded on them um, a fair bit, so you've got the whole flying saucer grey. Um, yeah, yeah. You can bring in for them if you're looking for a modern day angle.
1: The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on BlasphemousTomes.com. Thanks for listening.
2: And finally, we hit the top spot with number one. Yep, at number one. Give give us hints, see if we can guess. Well, it's already been mentioned once so far in the episode. Scott mentioned it in his... um... Is it amorphous? It is, (laughs) so... well. (laughs) <laughs> Is it Jimmy Savile? <laughs> oh, you had to go there, didn't you? Um, from his quote from the um, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. That one of the, especially when you said about we're not going to use gods for the episode, I thought, how about something that hangs out with a god? In fact, many of them hang out with one particular god, so, one so, of my favourites. So, yeah, we're talking about god groupies here, are we? Yeah, in fact, so, especially as music does come into this, the groupies is definitely a good good way to put it. So it's, it's the Entourage. Yes, in fact, yeah. well, they really should have been called the Entourage of the, uh, the Outer Gods, really, shouldn't they? No, um, in fact, the Servitor of the Outer Gods, I think they're great, just even the description of them. Um, it's one of the best little um, thumbnail drawings in um, the, at least going back to the 6th Admiral book, and it appears in a few of the iterations before then as well. It's a wonderful sketch. And this part toad, part octopus, um, really grumpy grandma, well, at least looking like my grandma anyway, looking uh, looking face, um, with this huge flute that it's um, holding in its monstrous paws. And your grandma does this? Well, she doesn't play the flute, but she looks pretty mean. Okay. <laughs> <Do I
0: stop>? <laughs> 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 There's a grandmother sucking eggs joke in there. Somewhere. <laughs>
1: So, it's basically like
2: a, some kind of eldritch folk ensemble. Well, yeah, it's, it's used almost <laughs> as if I, the way I look at them is almost they are hidden in the cracks in reality. That ultimately, at the centre of all creation, you've got this, you've got the Demon Sultan, you have Azathoth that is sat there listening to the sound of these p- uh, flutes playing mindlessly. Mm. That, A, where the hell did they come from? Um, it was Paul Lawrence who ran a scenario a little while ago. Um, that's detailed how one might change into a servitor. And that, that really got my brain ticking, thinking, actually, yeah, this, there's a lot of potential with these. So um, I've put them into, as a nod to that, put them into a scenario uh, later on where there is a particular encounter where if the if the player does end up failing a lot of roles, they could end up losing their character as it descends through a gate into the court and becoming a new servitor. Forever to dance around playing a flute. Indeed. Ah, C- huh. could be worse, you could end up putting a mask on and dancing in a court and Carcosa in this case you actually get to play the music but it's in a different part of reality no, they, they're used at least in the rulebook you can use them to help in summoning other gods, they appear with certain other gods, they almost like a, a feature of the universe themselves that they aren't specifically linked to the court, but they They get their tentacles in a lot of pies. And this kind of ties in with your taste for
1: running games as well, because they're not something I really envisage ever encountering in a combat situation. Whereas I can think of that with the Shoggoth and a a lot of the other monsters we've uh, discussed, the combat aspect kind of
2: comes into the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game quite a lot, Mm -hmm. but not so much with the Serpentry of the Out of Gods, I don't think. No, they're they're very much part of the setting and part of the scenery. Um, Likewise with the dole, it's you don't go up against it because you die. Um, you don't necessarily go up against the service of the Outer Gods unless you've got a, an enchanted weapon and you can back it up with a hell of a lot of damage to get through its armour. The thing, under the right circumstances, is nigh on unkillable. And I don't like combat in my games, I've, I've said it enough times. That's why I don't generally use monsters all that much. Hmm. I much prefer the human face of the Mythos. But so these are one of the really nice monsters that I think add a lot of colour. And again, you really don't want to go up against it.
0: You do realise I'm now going to have to write a pop Cthulhu scenario now, where you get to punch one in the face.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, poor thing! <laughs> its
2: toad-like grandmother face. Probably <laughs> <laughs> just like, look at you in horror as it realises. Hang on a minute, you hurt me! <laughs> and then scamper off playing its flute
0: <laughs> in a minor key. <laughs> 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 And moving on to my number one with a bullet. Well, anyone who has played many games with me at conventions can probably guess what this is going to be. Mm, sandweller. <laughs> mm, close.
2: Big koala. Nice, nice, cute and fluffy.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I must admit, I've never even felt tempted to use a sandweller in a game. But no, I, it is of course deep ones. Um, Shock and horror. <laughs> I've mentioned this on other podcasts, but I've run a series of of games at conventions for about seven or eight years now. A while, definitely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. under the general title Time and Tide, which revolve around the Deep One diaspora from Innsmouth after the fall of Innsmouth, and the kind of knock-on effects throughout the 20th century and up to the modern day and as as a result you know i've spent a lot of the last several years thinking about deep ones and and rereading the shadow over insmith a number of times i when i first set out to do a game about deep ones i went back and and reread the shadow over insmith for the first time in decades and i was kind of shocked by, you know, something... Oh, a few things which I hadn't quite remembered, which is, you know, on the first page there, there's this talk about the authorities going into Innsmouth and rounding up all the residents and putting them in
1: concentration camps. Mm. And... That's something <laughs> the good guys do. <laughs> yeah. And but this is before the Second World War. Yeah. That's have to remember. Obviously, concentration camps weren't invented then, but... Oh, no, well, they, they were. were. No, no, oh, they yeah. weren't invented in the Second World War, is what I meant. Oh, yeah, yes. yes. They, they were already invented, but... Yeah, that's where most people think of them from. I think nowadays.
0: Yeah, the concentration camp came to sort of have other implications. I the concentration camp started out during the Boer War. It was a British invention. Like uh, oh, all great inventions, <laughs> yes. But what this brought home to me this time round was that the deep ones struck me as being a much more sympathetic figure than I'd, I'd quite uh, that I'd quite picked up on first time round. I don't know if Lovecraft really meant them to be that
1: way, but. I think there is a feeling of sympathy for them, especially towards the end of um, Shadow Rinsmith. Uh We have Olmsted, you know, I'm going to spoil the, the, the end here, but uh, um, the, 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 he realized that he is a deep one and he's going to go down to Yanethli and join the, the, the deep ones and so on. And there's a kind of a, a feeling of repulsion that he's going to be a deep one, but also a sense of wonder that he's going to be a deep one. He's going to get to join these, these almost fantastic things that live forever and...
2: You see, from my perspective, I lost all sympathy after reading Neonomicon. (laughs) Yeah, but
1: that was a bit different.
2: Just a bit.
0: But Mm. perhaps we've skipped ahead slightly. So, the Deep Ones are a humanoid race. Uh, They can interbreed with humans, but they're not humans themselves. They are very much of the sea. They resemble uh, humanoid frogs and with fish-like features. But when they breed with humans, the young they have appear to be human or, you know, albeit a slightly strange-looking person who changes gradually as they get older, becoming more and more like their Deep One heritage, until they reach the stage where, you know, they, they no longer look even remotely human and generally then pass into the sea, go down to Yerhanathle y- or one of the other great cities and
2: spend eternity there in the lightless realms. Thinking of the change and hybridisation and such process, um, at least in Malin's Monstorum, the grand compendium of um, Cthulhu monsters, um, it's one of the few monsters that has so many variations. Mm. There's been lots of tangents and modifications and other little tweaks that have been done to Deep Ones. There's a whole chart of them, some some of which are your regular Deep Ones that look, say, as you described, frogs. Uh, fish, down to ones that have tentacles and almost one eye that almost resembled the um, HG Wells description of a Martian.
0: Yeah, in fact, if you think about the film version that was made, or one of the film versions that's been made, uh, Dagon by mm-hmm. Stuart Gordon, there are a few variants in there, including that tentacle version, uh, that actually appear in the film. One thing I really like about Deep Ones is how versatile they are. When I first started playing Call of Cthulhu donkeys years ago, One of the things I really like about Deep Ones is the fact that they're very versatile. When I first started playing Call of Cthulhu, Donkeys, years ago, I remember in not so much the core Chaosium publications, though I I think there may have been hints of it sometime, but in some of the uh, the magazine publications like White Dwarf or Different Worlds, there were scenarios where it it almost seemed like um, Deep Ones were like Call of Cthulhu's Orcs. At the same time, you know, they they're intelligent creatures you know they, they can move amongst humanity so you and they can also do magic, so you know if you think about um the thing on the doorstep, for example, Asenath-Waite is a deep one hybrid in that,
1: mm.
0: so you know, that's a very different take a different way you can use a deep one um, and there's the whole you know the, the, going into what probably inspired lovecraft more than anything else in this, which is his fear of race mixing, there is this whole sort of invasive species aspect to them almost, the fact that they are, you know, there's the danger that they will outbreed humanity somehow, Mm. which sort of plays into those very deep racist fears. Their shadow will spread over the land.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Although in the story, I mean, they don't really appear to be, I mean, they certainly are interbreeding with humans. They don't seem to be trying to take over humanity. Well, I don't get that not,
0: sense from the story. Not overall, but there's the whole thing about how they've taken over Innsmouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, most certainly. Yeah, yeah. it started yeah. out with you know, a few of them being brought back from the South Sea Islands,
1: breeding with the people of Innsmouth. But they and... seem quite uh, insular. They don't seem to be trying to, to reach out to other communities. They seem to be uh, quite inward-looking.
0: No, apart from the fact that, you know, there are ones that have scattered around like Asnathwaite, like Robert Olmsted and so on. Mm. So, you know, if you're looking at this particular interpretation, you could almost see those as being potential almost vectors going mm. out and, and spreading the seed elsewhere. Mm. But, yes, yeah, so I just touched upon there. I mean, they do seem to be almost the summation of Lovecraft's fears, don't they? That, they, you know, they play into his fear of the sea. They play into his fear of what's lurking in your bloodline which seems to come up in a lot of his stories, yeah. and, and, and also
1: very much into his racism. Maybe that's why it's one of his best stories. Yeah. It, it
2: pulls together all those um, things that he felt so strongly about. There's also an element of progression there as well. So you start being human, you then start to change, mm-hmm. you become a deep one, and potentially you're immortal. Um, but also then you have two of the bigger, named, lesser Creature, um, creatures in the mythos, Dagon and Hydra. Yes. The fact that they can rise above the rest of the race and become effectively high priests to a great old one themselves. On to my number one. I'm going for another
1: um, one that the humans can change into. It's the ghoul. Oh, another classic. Mm-hmm. I was looking at this today and thinking back, and one of the reasons it's my favourite, my first Lovecraft story that I read... Was Pickman's model, and Pickman, you know, subsequently goes on to become you know, a ghoul in uh, *Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath*. And the first scenario that I ran was *Paper Chase* mm. for one player. That was the, the first scenario from the Keeper's Companion, or the Cthulhu Companion, I think. Yeah, it's just been a, a perennial favorite. I mean, it's something that I guess we've said most of these things are from Lovecraft. But a ghoul, I mean, a ghoul isn't. You know, from Lovecraft. This is a no,
0: but but Lovecraft's very particular interpretation of them is is, is his own. Mm. I, I suppose they're different in that they draw upon a lot of other uh, mythology. They're perhaps the most derivative of Lovecraft's creatures. I mean, right down
1: to the name.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean. They are very much a traditional monster in that sense. Yes. I mean, we see
1: ghouls you know, in White Wolf vampire games, and we see them in D&D games. You see, you see the word ghoul. They're, they're a slightly different thing. They are a different manifestation of what a ghoul
2: is. But you know, the term ghoul is a more common one. I was going to say, definitely in the White Wolf sense, pretty much the only similarity between Lovecraft's ghoul and the vampire ghoul is that it's the name. Um, well,
1: they start as human, though. I mean, they're, they're kind of human
2: They're, they're effectively vampires, right? Yeah, they're, they're effectively a hybrid. Um, they're kind of half-living, half-dead in that respect, whereas there's not really so much of the burrowing into the dreamlands or the monstrous no, aspect no, sure, of them. Sure. They, they still look yeah. human, whereas a ghoul in, at least as I envision ghouls in Lovecraft, are very, the whole uh, canine aspect.
0: And, but it, and, mm. and also, I don't think every ghoul in Lovecraft starts out as human, because there's that whole thing about, for example, ghoul changelings. Mm. So you mm. know, ghouls will take one of their own babies and swap it out for a human child, raise mm. the human child as their own, and and leave this this ghoul baby in you know, in with Ooh. the human
1: family, and leave leave them to raise it. And where do we see that, Scott? Uh, that's mentioned in Pigman's model. I need to read that again. Then I've forgotten about that. What you were saying about them being canine, I remember playing um, in uh, Matt Knott's games uh, many years back. Uh, And uh, there was this human that appeared, entirely human, and then I think we attacked them. They became kind of monstrous and he described them as very canine and dog-like and at that point I hadn't really figured that it was a ghoul. Because they get, I think, three attacks per round, mm. They, it, it, the thing moved incredibly quickly and just seemed almost invulnerable. I mean, it was it was quite a terrifying thing when it kind of manifested. That was a great game and, a, you know, one that was uh, very much based on ghouls and I think Matt Knott would probably go for ghouls as well as one of his favourites. He's used those quite a lot. Well, what's his handle on Yog-Sothoth?
2: there's like Pikmin 1 or something. Oh,
0: yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, as you touched on there, ghouls are absolutely terrifying in Call of Cthulhu because physically on the same kind of scale as humans, but they're difficult to hurt, they attack fast, they've got claws, they've got teeth, they rip your throats out.
1: Yeah, and then eat you afterwards. mm and they can they can burrow down into the ground I know Matt in in some of my games you've you've, you've like summoned them and they just kind mm. of burrow up in the garden and uh, you know they and it's great because you can kind of have them make deals with you um, and you know the payment they want is maybe like a fresh human corpse today it starts
2: with the summoning tomorrow it ends up with bean mingle <laughs>
0: And, yeah, they're intelligent. They're not even necessarily that evil. I mean, they're, they're driven by hunger. They're driven by the desire to eat human flesh.
1: But, very but much, it seems to be strict, restricted to dead human flesh. Yes. Obviously, you know, <laughs> they, can, they can make it dead. and It's then not it's that just difficult sandwich, to yeah. make a live one into a dead one. <laughs> yeah, but, and they um, let it
0: ripen a bit. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I've seen them used as almost allies in a few Call mm-hmm. of Cthulhu scenarios. That, uh, not so much, you know, as the good guys, as the lesser of two evils... That yeah, you know, they're a force that, yeah, you know, perhaps you can form that temporary alliance with against the thing that's really threatening you. Yeah. And then worry about them eating you afterwards.
2: Especially if you've got a shared enemy, yeah, yeah. 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 They are very much almost a carrion feeders. They're not there with their own, at least when I've seen them used in certain instances, they don't have their own malevolent agenda. They just so happen to give. be a bit like set dressing and an aspect of the scenery that you can utilise.
0: But again, yeah, you know, one of the things that makes them dangerous is the fact that they're tribal, so you very rarely encounter just one or two. Mm-hmm. You know they have a support network, and also you know being intelligent magical creatures, you know, they as you say, they can go through into the dreamlands, they can also do magic
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I think that, that entry to the dreamland shouldn't be overlooked. that you made reference to Matt. I mean the fact that they can tunnel to the dreamlands this is something that's picked up in, on in uh, one of the delta green books uh one of their fiction books if memory serves me right one of the uh, one of the delta green agents reads the cult de ghoul and starts to transform into a ghoul herself and she takes on the ability that she can consume human brains and take on their memories and also you know frenzy and turn into a ghoul uh, i think she's kind of maybe got like consumed likeness not sure or, or maybe she's not just still looks fairly
2: human Especially again, going back to the, the underworld um, and, the, and the Vale of Panath, the same place where, near where the dolls are. Just the idea of this huge sea of bones that these creatures are scampering over and picking the, uh, the last scraps of flesh off for eternity is quite quite horrific, really. And they, you know, they give Randolph Carter
1: a hand. Yeah. They? They, you know, they help him out in uh, Dream Quest. Yeah,
0: yes, yeah, they're, they're not necessarily evil. One of the best portrayals of ghouls I've seen actually comes from fiction. And that's from a a collection of dark fantasy stories by Brian McNaughton called The Throne of Bones. It's not a classic Lovecraftian setting. I mean, it probably has more in common with, in in terms of style, with maybe kind of a mixture of um, uh, Jack Vance and uh, Clark Ashton Smith. It's, every story is about ghouls and the interactions between ghouls and, and human society and people turning into ghouls and ghouls, taking on human guys and so on. And some of the stories are, uh, you know, blackly humorous, some of them are deadly serious. And dear God, they're all good.
1: Hmm. And they explicitly
2: kind of love crafty and yes. all. Yeah, that's quite clear. All yeah. right okay. Oh, you, you sold me when you kind of riffed on the um, Zathique end of the world, um, last continent style. There, yeah. when you mentioned Vance and Clark Ashton Smith, so I'm sold.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's not explicitly that kind of setting, but it is. Yeah, I mean it's a very kind of classic fantasy setting, dark fantasy, by the dark same, fantasy. Again. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's our top threes. Uh, if you've got a favourite, then if you want to let us know what that is, we'd be interested to hear.
0: Or alternatively, just summon one up and leave it beneath one of our beds and, and we'll have a chat with it.
2: Preferably one of the ones I've summoned. If it's if it's the dole, please give me some advance warning. <laughs> I don't think your bed's that big, Matt. Yeah, it'd have to be a hell of a big bed, like a <laughs> sea bed.
1: <laughs> I think one of the common themes I notice, um, well... Among all of us, really, particularly the ones I chose, I think, is that they're uh, I like ones that have a, a human face as well almost, or or interact with humans more so perhaps yeah, and they're, they're just easier to integrate into a game, you know, you can introduce them quite early on, subtly
0: yeah they they're not just things to be killed. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're things to interact
1: with as you say,
0: they're, they're perhaps antagonists, they're perhaps foils but they, they make things complicated and interesting rather than just violent.
1: And I think that's partly why we see quite a lot of you know, Deep
2: One scenarios see a lot of Migos scenarios and so on whereas I just go for the other end of the scale where if you meet it you probably won't kill it
1: <laughs> Well that about wraps it up for tonight so it's goodbye from me
2: Cheerio from me and farewell from me
0: Blasphemous mm-hmm.